We're going to, as you know, begin a series this morning that I'm very excited to begin because it's already transformed in, in some ways. Maybe that's too strong a word, but, but it's transformed, I'll use it anyway, my whole approach to gathering here and being with you and approaching the Lord's presence together. And uh, so I wanted to say that the main, the main goal of this is to help us as a body appreciate biblically why we do what we do. And, and to approach what we already do in, in a more um, uh, wholehearted way. And so, so that is really the main, the main goal and I think the primary result of this time. Um, as far as any practical differences in the service, um, that's going to be very minor. That would be very, very minor. So if, if, you're, if you're worried that the comfort zone is about to be lost, um, don't worry about that. So having said that, I, I, because, because I think the key is, the, what, I, what I want to watch out for is that we don't come in wondering, where is this going? So that we're not then able to appreciate how we get there. So, so I'll, I'll just encourage you, as the best I can, to start, to start at the beginning and to pray, to pray earnestly that the Lord will do a wonderful work in you and in the body through this. So, we're going to go through a series here titled, How Should We Worship? And so the, the first thing we need to ask then is, well, what is worship in the first place? So I want you to think about that. Just think about that word for a moment. I'm going to say the word, worship. What is it? Now we could say that worship is, is ascribing worth to God. And certainly in a limited sense, that's true. But at its most basic level, we need to see worship is more than that. It's more than just saying to God how wonderful and great he is. Worship in your handout is very simply all that the creature owes uniquely and exclusively to the creator. So worship encompasses all that humans owe to the deity, to the only true God. So the Apostle Paul, he gives this indictment of man in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And I feel like saying in God's people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. When responding to the tempter, he says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now notice, notice how in both of those passages, the words worship and serve were paired together. That happens a lot in the, old, in the Bible. Worship and serve, they go together. So when Paul says that 
men worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. He's using a hen... Now, I'm, at this moment, I'm forgetting how to say that word. Hendiadus, thank you. Okay, thank you, there it is. Hendiadus. That just means this. It's the expression of a single truth, of a single idea, by two words connected with and. So in other words, worship is not one thing and served is another. Worshipped and served. That's, that's worshipped and served. Okay? That's one idea expressed by two words. So worship expresses, therefore, at the most basic level, what is worship, brothers and sisters? This is what we say that we do, right? This what we say is a big deal. What is it? Well, it is at the most basic level our whole posture before God. And the way that we are called to relate to him. One of the Hebrew words for worship is chawa, which basically, which means literally to bow down. But instead of saying bow down, we often just translate it worship, because that's the meaning. When we bow down, we worship. The same thing in the Greek. The Greek has a word for worship that literally means to bow down. And so when a person bows down before God, that outward posture of his body should be a reflection of the inward posture. What's that posture inside? It's not just a posture of adoring God or praising God, which is what we think of when we think of worship. The posture is one of unworthiness and confession. When I'm bowing before God, that's the posture inside in my heart. It can be one of dependence and petition. When I bow before God, I recognize my need for him, even for my daily needs, for my breath. I recognize that I need, and so I ask. That's worship. Worship is is asking God with an attitude of dependence upon him. Uh, Submission and obedience. Gratefulness and thanksgiving. Worship is all that the creature owes to the creator. It is our posture before God. So we read in Exodus chapter 20, the first two of the Ten Commandments are these. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them, that's chawap, bow down to them, or serve them, there they are again, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So get this in our, in our minds. If, if worship is at its most basic level, everything you owe to God as the creature to the creator, then our second response to the question, how should we worship? 
might be, do I even need to ask that question? Right? Because now what is worship? Worship is like everything. Right? Can there be any single right answer to that question? So let's narrow it down now. Now that we've set that big picture, let's narrow it down by asking this question. What is Sunday morning worship? Now you, you work at that. What is Sunday morning worship? What is this? What is this? What is it that sets this time apart from all other times? From even all other gatherings of the church? Because as a church, we get together and do other things, like we have prayer meetings. We get together for Bible studies. We get together and sing hymns together for a hymn sing. We, have, we could have a praise and testimony time. You could even have a gifts and talents night. So have you ever asked yourself the question, what's this? We live in a day, and, and, and you know, so I just said, well, what's worship? It's this big thing. And then I said, well, what's Sunday morning worship? Now, we live in a day and a culture of egalitarianism, okay? Like, that's, that's the time we live in, egalitarianism, which is the treatment of people, or even of things, as equal. Now, an egalitarianism that emphasizes that you and I, no matter the color of our skin, the shade of our skin, um, male or female, rich or poor, an egalitarianism that emphasizes that we are all of equal worth and value as human beings is a good thing. But contemporary egalitarianism is not so concerned with equal worth and value, though it would say it is, it is not. It is more concerned with equal everything. Equal everything. Equal roles, equal status, equal opportunities, equal outcomes. Now we see this egalitarianism in the church in different ways. Certainly in the denial of that there are distinct roles given to male and female in creation. Not, not better roles for one or the other. Distinct roles. And so they're not equal in terms of being the same. But more to the point, you say, why are we talking about egalitarianism? Here's why. Because this egalitarian spirit of the age, it's a spirit of the age. It is seen in the church in the denial that there is any distinction between things that are holy and things that are common. This egalitarian spirit of the age is seen in the fact that when I say, here's what worship is, big picture, and then we say, well, what is Sunday morning worship? The egalitarian says, that's an illegitimate question. You can't ask that question, because all things are equal at some basic level. Well, let's read Ezekiel 22, verse 26. This is a theme all over in the Old Testament and in the New. 
But we'll read Ezekiel 22 now. Her priests have done violence to my law. They have profaned. The, the word literally means treated as common. They have treated as common my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned. It literally means I am treated as common among them. Now, it's important to see here, common things are not sinful. That which was common was not sinful, but neither was it holy. So I want to ask you this question. Is there no longer any distinction under the new covenant between the common and the holy? Is there no longer anything that, any way today that we might treat God as common? So egalitarianism, this is what it says. All times, all places, and all things are alike. They're all equal. And therefore, they should all be treated alike and equal. Now, you can see the implications that that will have for our approach to Sunday morning worship. Because we asked the question. What is the question I asked? What sets this time here and what we're doing now, what sets it, what sets it apart? From every other time, and even from all the other gatherings of the church. How does the egalitarian answer? He or she says, well, there is no real or essential difference. Why is there no real or essential difference? Because all times and places are equally holy. All things are equally sacred. We've lost, then, we may do, here's the thing, though. Look at this distinction. I may say, well, we do different things here. Like, we have a sermon here. We don't have a sermon at other times. So we we do different things. All of us admit this is a different time because we do different things. But there's nothing fundamentally... There's nothing deeper, deeper down that sets this time apart. From all other times and from all other gatherings of the church, brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that in large part we have lost the ability to distinguish between the common and the holy. And it's this egalitarian mindset that explains, let me, I will get very, very practical. This is practical, by the way. This is very practical. But by our ideas of what practical is, we're going to get there later on. But, but let's just uh, anticipate a little bit of that. It's this egalitarian mindset that explains, in part, why Sunday morning worship can have such a radically different look and feel at different churches. Now be careful, I'm not saying every church should look exactly, it should be a clone of what happens here. 
But I am saying that it's this mindset of no longer distinguishing between the common and the holy, between no longer knowing what it is deep down we do in this time, what it is. It is this that explains why church can look so radically different. In other words, it's this that throws open the door to the rule of personal preference. It's this egalitarian assumption that explains why we have coffee bars on site so that people can enjoy their coffees during the service. Um, And if anyone here is enjoying their coffee, I have no idea. Okay. You know, I I put a note in in the book that may, may come out one day. I put a note in there that says, this is not a judgment of hearts as it is an evaluation of activities. So we ought never to turn from these things to judge hearts. But we ought to evaluate our own activities. So it's this egalitarian... So we, we, we as a church may say, well, this is the way we do things. I'm comfortable with the way we do things. But then it's like, well, well, that church does it this way. Well, I think it just must be a personal preference thing. Well, that church has a coffee bar, and, and everyone stands outside and gets their coffees and brings their coffees into worship and enjoys their coffees while they're worshiping. Well, maybe I think, well, I don't like that. Why don't you like that? What's the problem with that? Why, why is that happening? And, wh- wh- where in the Bib- and where in the Bible does it say that drinking a coffee during worship is wrong? Now, this is, where, this is where what we have is we have a whole generation of Christians who says, if you can't show me a verse that tells me that drinking coffee during worship is sin, then it's not and I can do whatever I want. And this is the way we approach all of our Christian lives. So what I'm going to ask us to do is go deep down and, and look at, what we do here, what is this, and what will it say about our activities? It's this egalitarian assumption of not distinguishing between the common and the holy that explains, I believe, coffee bars. It explains uh, personal preference being the rule. It explains why cultural relevance, on the one hand, but also tradition on the other, is enough to legitimize whatever it is we do on Sunday morning. Uh, uh, of course, with the con- obvious caveat that it must be honoring to the Lord. As long as it's honoring to the Lord, we can do whatever we want. As long as it brings glory to Him, we can do whatever we want in this time. Why? Because this is not set apart as holy from the common. All is holy. Therefore, if, if it's honoring to the Lord, it can automatically be done here. Or if the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us you can't drink coffee in church, then of course we can all do this. And this is where we want to think more deeply. It's this egalitarian assumption also that explains in part why for many Christians, church attendance is not the absolute and supreme priority that it should be. Because if all of life is equally sacred, if there is no distinction between the common and the holy, 
you see what happens. And so we're living in a generation and a day when commitment to the assembly of the church for worship is honestly not even remotely approaching close what biblically it should be for those of us who love the Lord. Now, that's not to be, I mean, again, then we have to start saying all sorts of things like, well, I don't want to be legalistic. And, you know, honestly, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of it. And I hope I'm not tired of it with carnal motives because that definitely sneaks in. But we have to, it should go, it goes without saying that there are, there are jobs and professions that require us and that we depend on ourselves for someone to be at work on Sunday. And that when you're sick, you don't want to come and spread it to the body. I'm not talking about those things. But there's a lot of other things that we excuse by saying, well, that's legalistic. And it's simply not. We just simply don't know what this time is. And therefore, we don't share the commitment to this time that the Bible would call us to share. And call us to share with, with exuberance in our souls as we gather. Now, I'll ask you this question then. Are you a Christian egalitarian? And without, without knowing it, have you absorbed the egalitarian spirit of the age when it comes to your approach to Sunday morning worship? I'll ask you to put it this way. Are you able to distinguish between the common and the holy? What is this? What is Sunday morning worship? Well, we could answer. How would you answer? I could say, well, it's, it's whatever we do on Sunday morning. It's, it's gathering as Christians, here we are, to glorify God and edify one another. Now, we can do that all sorts of other places and not call it church. We ought to gather as Christians all the time. Whenever we gather as Christians, we ought to be glorifying God, and we ought to be edifying one another. But you see, that's as far as the egalitarian is able or willing to go. But we still have not answered the fundamental question, what is this? And therefore, because of what this is, what should we do? (laughs) Because of what this is, how should we do it? What we're going to see in the coming weeks is that the Bible teaches us that Sunday morning worship must be treated differently. You know, all, all other women in the world are common to me. There's only one woman that's sacred to me. Therefore, I treat that woman differently in a way that I do not treat anyone else. This time is holy, sacred. All of the times are common compared to this time. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Therefore, do I, do I, do I, do I, that my point in bringing that up was, do I grudgingly treat the one woman in my life differently? Because that's just what I have to do. Do we approach this time on Sunday morning? You're, you're telling me I've got to treat this time holy? No, I want to treat all of life holy. Well, I don't go out and say, no, I want to treat all of women as holy in my life, you know. 
No, there's only one. And that's wonderful, and that's beautiful, and that's the way it should be. And so we're about to see that with Sunday morning worship. We're we're to treat this time differently from all other times, not simply by virtue of the day of the week when it's observed or the place where it happens, but by virtue of what it is. In other words, this worship is by definition set apart from all other activities that men can ever engage in. It is not common, but uniquely and especially holy. Okay. We're building. So I want to read to you a quote from a guy who lived in the 1800s. We've quoted him a bit in Sunday school. I really like how he puts things. He says this, Religious worship may be viewed as either internal or external. The former, internal worship, consisting in that inward homage which we owe to God, such as loving, believing, fearing, trusting in him and other illicit or inward acts of the mind. The latter, or external worship, consisting in the outward expression of that homage by the observance of his instituted ordinances. Now, when we hear the expressions internal worship and external worship, you might be tempted to think of good worship and bad worship, right? Internal worship is the good worship because it's the heart. External worship, what? External worship? That's bad because that's fake. That's hypocritical. And that's not the point Shaw is making. Let's put it this way, okay? Internal worship is, in a sense, all of life. All of life. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So obviously, from those verses, you can see there's a sense in which vocational work like when a man goes to his job every day, uh, that's worship, right? When Kevin goes to the, to the body shop or the uh, mechanics shop or whatever, I'm sorry, I'm not thinking of the word I want now, that's worship. Kevin's worshiping. Lance goes to ExxonMobil, that's worship, right? Paul says, whether you eat or drink, when we all got up and ate breakfast this morning, if we did it to the glory of God with thanksgiving to him, that was worship. So if we're talking about internal worship, we're talking about the heart, about about everything we do being worshipped because it's the expression of the inward homage which we owe to God. So what does the egalitarian say about external worship? He says, that's a ridiculous question. He says, there's no such thing. Because all that matters is the heart. And because all of life is worship. And it's precisely that unbiblical way of thinking 
that introduces a whole host of errors into how we do church and how we worship on Sunday morning. Now, we said that there's a sense in which vocational work, when you get up, and, you, I'm, and I'm just picking this, you get up and you go to work, you go to your job, that's worship, because it expresses the inward homage which you owe to God. However, there's another sense in which work is what in your handout? What's the word there? It is not worship. Absolutely not. It must by all means be carefully distinguished from worship. Let me put it like this. Work is not in and of itself an act of worship. Did you see that? Work is not in and of itself an act. There's the word for external, there's external, of worship. We know that because the Bible does not condemn the work of every unbeliever as an act of false or idolatrous worship. So if you're, if you're an unbeliever and you go to work, that's not false worship. Because it's not worship. <laughs> okay. Prayer, on the other hand, is in and of itself an act of worship. So what I'm saying is, you cannot pray without worshiping. It is impossible. As soon as you pray, you worship. By prayer, I mean calling, calling upon or acknowledging God's name, whether you're confessing your sins, you're petitioning him for your needs, for his glory, whether you're thanking him for his provisions in your life, whether you're praising or adoring him. So prayer is the expression of that which the creature owes uniquely and exclusively to the creator. When I pray, I'm expressing what the creature owes to the creator. Therefore, prayer is in and of itself an act of worship. Prayer in your, I think this is in your handout, it is the act that expresses at the most basic level our posture before God. And the way we're called to relate to him. What, we see that in the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray. Look at, look at the posture. Look at the worship. Look at what the creature owes to the creator. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's worship. Because it's the creature acknowledging his dependence to the creator. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So because prayer is an act of worship externally, that means that when an unbeliever prays, what is he doing? He's worshiping. When the unbeliever goes to work, he's not worshiping. Work is not worship. When the unbeliever prays, he's worshiping. And the Bible calls that an act of idolatrous worship. It's not the heart that makes it worship. See, see here? It is not the heart that makes it, that makes it worship. It's the act that makes it worship. So when an unbeliever prays to a false god... His heart is obviously wrong, but he's still worshiping. By this definition, the Bible is clear 
Isaiah 44. The rest of the piece of wood he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it because that is, that is an act of worship. And he says, deliver me for you are my God. Uh, I'll skip Isaiah. Well, gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. In Isaiah 46, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, pray, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Now, when, when, when we pray to the one true God, oh, to anyone but the one true God, we're worshiping. It's idolatrous worship, but it's still worship. When we pray to the one true God, even though our hearts are far away from him, so we're still, we're like praying to the God of the Bible, but our hearts are elsewhere, living in our sinful ways, right? Well, then what kind of worship is that? Some would say, well, that's not even worship. Well, in one sense, it's not, if you're talking about internal worship. But in terms of external worship, it's still worship. You are still worshiping. It's just hypocritical worship. Because you cannot ever pray or bow down in this sense without worshiping, because that's, that's an act of worship. So I'm going to skip the first two passages back there for PowerPoint and, and streaming and go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 7 to 9. It says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. God didn't say, well, you're not even really worshiping. No, you are worshiping. You're just worshiping in vain. Prayer is always worship. Whether that worship is performed by the unbeliever or a believer, whether it's idolatrous, whether it's hypocritical, or whether it's true worship. Work, on the other hand, Eating breakfast is not intrinsically an external act of worship. This is so important. It is not worship. Even though it may be and should be the outward evidence or expression of internal worship. So let me put it this way to be very succinct that there is a very important sense in which work is not worship. Only what is worship? Only worship is worship. That's all. Now, this should already begin to be percolating the question in our minds. If we gather here for worship, what are we gathering here for? What, What worship are we talking about? Internal? Which is all of life? Because if that's what we're thinking, we're just coming here to do what all of life is, and we're here coming here to do it together, that's the egalitarian. That's not distinguishing between the common and the holy. 
And there, this is what God wants us to do as we approach this time every Lord's Day. Let's consider another example. Let's say that we could all go anoint the feet of Jesus this very moment. Just like Mary anointed Jesus' feet in John chapter 12. Now, would you be worshiping Jesus when you did that? I believe and trust you would be. You'd be worshiping Jesus. That will be an expression of the inward homage which you owe to God. So we might be worshiping in that act. But you know what? It might feel weird and look weird, but I could anoint your feet with the most lavish expression of anointment and perfume that I had. I could anoint your feet as an expression of love and affection without automatically being guilty of false worship. I may have an idolatrous heart, but that's beside the point. The act itself was not worship. So I can anoint your feet or I can anoint Jesus' feet. For Jesus is one thing, for you it ought to be another. Right? Anointing a person's feet, whether the feet of Jesus or anyone else, is not in itself an external act of worship because God did not ordain it as such. God did not say anointing feet is worship. No, God has ordained prayer as an act of worship, not anointing feet. Not eating your breakfast. Are you beginning to see this distinction between internal worship, which should be all of your life, and external worship, which is we restrict to specific forms or activities? We could say that internal worship is common. Internal worship is common in your handout. While external worship is set apart from all the rest of life as holy. You, I think maybe we start to feel now that we are egalitarians. We are all of us, to some extent, Christian egalitarians. I've spent a lot of time on this here at the beginning because this distinction, which we're going to continue to see borne out in the scriptures is essential to understanding the answer to the question, how should we worship? If we don't get this distinction, we can't ask or answer that question. Because I am not asking, how should we worship internally? The answer to that question is as big as your life. It's as big as the universe we live in. (laughs) I'm asking the question, how should we worship Externally. And the answer to that question is not nearly so big. It's like the difference between my wife and every other woman on the face of the planet. Internal worship has to do only with the heart. External worship assumes the heart but it has to do uniquely with forms and activities, with the outward expression of this homage by the observance, the careful observance of God's instituted ordinances. What he has said we ought to do and how he has said we ought to worship. In other words, when we speak of external worship, 
in your handout. Uh, no blank, but it's there. We're speaking of those acts that are intrinsic acts of worship because why? They've been instituted and ordained as such by God. I hope you're already getting excited as we begin to see this. Now, the London Baptist Confession, we're going to take it one step further this morning before we give us a week to think about it. The London Baptist Confession of Faith calls this external worship religious worship. And it says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed. We can do it in this building or any other building. Or towards which it is directed. We don't have to pray towards this building. Whenever you pray, you don't figure out which direction is 304 East Jackson Street. You know, they used to pray towards Jerusalem. Well, we don't have to do that now. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily, and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies. So, do you remember what the difference is between internal and external worship? What we're saying now is external worship can be engaged in anywhere. I mean, can you pray anywhere? Yeah. So external worship can happen anywhere. In any different places or circumstances. What the confession mentioned in private families. So if a father leads his family in, in, in reading the Bible and prayer and singing. Or in secret, if you just go into your room and shut your door. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? But you, when you pray, which is worship. Because God said prayer is worship. Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Or what about Cornelius? He said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house. During the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. But then there's a special sense, and the egalitarian doesn't like those words, does he? Whenever I say special sense, the egalitarian says, oh, I don't like that. Take that word away, right? There is a special sense in which external worship is associated with those times when God's people are gathered together expressly for, as Robert Shaw put it earlier, expressly for the observance of, of God's instituted ordinances. Or as the confession puts it, more solemnly in the public assemblies. So this is very important. This is the last step we take this morning. This external worship, in the context here of this gathered assembly, we can call it very uniquely, External temple worship. Because, brothers and sisters, this is not just a group of people getting together, is it? 
That, that could happen at a baseball game. Maybe we, maybe we could reserve the whole stadium for only Christians, right? Well, I'll go gather at the baseball game. Well, that's not, that's, that's not the temple. I mean, it is. But there's a sense in which we are all living stones, right? All of us as living stones built together into a holy temple in the Lord. And so when the living stones are all gathered together in one place, there uniquely is the Lord in their midst. There uniquely is the temple. And so therefore, when we do external worship in this context of the temple, what do we have? Temple. Worship. So it can be called external temple worship because it is that more solemn, or we could say formal, worship that happens at the temple, because there is still a temple, or in church. Paul uses the expression in church. And generally, to top it off, on a specific day. What we call the Lord's Day. Remember the Hendiadus that we saw earlier? Worshipped and served. Worshipped and served. Right? Remember how together those two words were a big idea? And that big idea was our whole posture towards God in all of life. But in reality, here's the thing. They refer very specifically to the cultic. And by cultic, I don't refer to cults. Cultic has to do with formal expressions of religious devotion at the temple or or religious acts of worship connected with the temple. So we know worship would. Psalm 132. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. When they said let us worship, they, they didn't mean let's go work, let's go eat breakfast. No, let us bow down and do all the things associated with bowing down which is prayer, in all of its forms. Let us go that place and do that. And so when we come here, what do we say? Let us go to the temple. Not, the, not this thing, but this. Go to the temple and, 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 and worship and do those things that God has instituted for us to do. Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Now we know that, but what about worship and serve? Numbers chapter 8, Aaron shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel, that the Levites may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. So serving the Lord specifically referred to all of the things associated with the temple and the things that they did there. Joshua 22. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord. What's the service of the Lord? Offering sacrifices. What's the service of the Lord? calling on the name of the Lord in connection with those sacrifices. So when we call on the Lord's name in connection with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is our service. 
in a way that no other part of our life is. When you go to the food pantry and serve there, that is not your service of the Lord. It is, but it's not. Because the service it's talking about here is uniquely that temple service that's associated with worship. So, we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings. Second Chronicles 35, So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord. The Hendiadus worshipped and served refers specifically to that external worship and service connected with the temple. When I ask the question, how should we worship? The worship I have in mind is external temple worship. The service that I have in mind is the service of God's people that is uniquely associated with his new covenant temple, which is this, gathered here. The church gathered on the Lord's day for the observance of his instituted ordinances. So we could say that this worship is doubly holy. Now, think about it now. You can start to think for yourself, okay, then what should we do and how should we do it on Sunday morning? But let's just assume that that means that we, we, we go on as we've been doing things forever. Nothing changes. But I think you might change. Something might change in you. And this is my really, this is the main goal, way bigger than anything else. That if nothing changed here, that you change and that I change. And what will that mean as you change for your approach to this time? May God protect us and guard us all from being Christian egalitarians. We could then say that worship is, this worship is doubly holy because not only is it external worship, it is external temple worship. And brothers and sisters, do we have a God who is worthy of this worship? Do we? I mean, we do. And so... So we delight to treat this time as holy. To treat this time as doubly holy. What will that mean? Some of us here, perhaps all of us here, need to be deeply convicted about how we have come and approached these times. Remember that That internal worship that you do and that should be all of your life, that's common. By common, I don't mean it's bad or sinful. That's common. External worship is holy, sacred, set apart. 
Now, there's another level in which all of your external worship that you perform at home, in private, or with your family, we could almost also say that there's a sense in which that is common. Compared with the doubly holy external temple worship that God has ordained and that happens each Lord's Day at his temple. And so what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that this time must be treated differently than all other times. Not with more, sometimes yes, with more soberness, um, but never with, and certainly never with flippancy. But that doesn't mean not with joy and happiness and with singing all our joyful songs and with being excited to come and be and to, to, to bow before his holy footstool. This time must be treated differently from all other times. Not simply by virtue of the day of the week when it's observed or the context in which it happens, but even by virtue of what it is. Now, that then leads us into next week. What is this external temple worship? What is it? And to get at the heart of the answer to that question, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be thrilling in a biblical way. We're going to need to go back to the beginnings of post-fall worship. After Adam and Eve sinned, what happened then? What did worship look like? We have to go back to that to find out and then trace the theme of worship throughout the whole course of redemptive history, beginning in Genesis and working through redemptive history all the way to the consummation of redemptive history in Jesus Christ. When we understand what external temple worship is, is, like deep down at its core, what it is under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant, then we're going to understand how we should worship. We will know the answer to the question. When we really understand what Sunday morning worship is, let's put it, I said external temple worship, let's just put it like this. When we understand what this is, Sunday morning worship, when we understand what it is, then we will understand what we ought to do, and even to a large extent, how we ought to do it during this time. Now, for right now, for right now, we've, we've set the table. We've laid We've poured a foundation, as it were. But for right now, then, let's just reflect on the fact that this time is not common. It is uniquely and especially holy. Therefore, let us ask God to help us every week approach this time biblically, and we're going to learn how to do that, I trust, in the coming weeks. And joyfully. So that as the writer of Hebrews says, we might offer to God 
acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we apply ourselves as creatures to grasp and understand that that highest of all activities in which we can be engaged, that greatest duty and privilege that you have called us to of worship. Let us, let us understand it so that you might be always and more faithfully and more fully glorified in our midst, in our church, in our lives, in our families. And so that in and through that, we grow in our delight in you, the object of our worship, the one that we bow down before, the one to whom we confess our unworthiness, our dependence, our thankfulness, and our greatest love and adoration. Because we have seen you to be not only our creator, but our redeemer. Who has, who has taken us out of the pit that we wallowed in. And brought us up to be those who call upon your name. From a pure heart. Lord, let us grow now in this time. And, and, and we pray again this, that your Holy Spirit gives us opened hearts and minds to grasp these truths. And and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.